Welcome to the Grace Life Fellowship Podcast. Today we'll hear again from Pastor Frank as he continues his series, Live Free, a study of Galatians. Today's message is called Two Sons, Two Covenants. If you'd like to hear the series from the beginning, I would suggest going back to episode two where he begins the series. Okay, here's Pastor Frank. I invite you to turn in your Bible to Galatians chapter 4. James Dobson wrote a book years ago called Parenting Isn't for Cowards. Can I hear an amen? I have told people for years that kids can fill your heart and break it at the same time. One writer put it this way, when they are little, they are a handful. When they are grown, they are a heartful. When they are little, they stomp on your toes. When they are grown, they stomp on your heart. That's exactly what the Apostle Paul is experiencing with his spiritual children, the Galatians. He was used of God to birth them into life through their faith in Jesus Christ. They were now his spiritual children. But seducing charmers had crept into the lives of his children, who were leading them away from Jesus to follow the law as a means of gaining a greater spiritual standing with God. Problem, of course, is that no one can keep the law. It's not going to work. The glory of the finished work of Christ is that you can't get any closer to God than you already are. The glory of the finished work of Jesus Christ is that you stand righteous. He cannot make you any more righteous. When Jesus said, it is finished, he actually meant what he said. Glory. No one can keep the law. We've learned in this study that the law written on stones kills and condemns. It leaves all of its adherents in a pit of despair, guilt, shame, and condemnation. The law is not a means to life. It is the way unto death. And Paul has been very strong about this. If you've been with us in our study, you know that he's been harsh, critical. Some would say even angry. But he has had to be. The lives of his spiritual kids are in danger. So for four chapters, he has desperately sought to get them to think. He wants to give them a proper perspective when it comes to the law. The Judaizers, religious people, have proclaimed that the law is a new and more complete revelation from God. After all, it came years after the issue of faith with Abraham. Now the chosen people are going into the land. They needed a better revelation now. And so they proclaimed that the law was a glorious gift from God. In essence, they said to the Galatians, think about how it was given. There was lightning and there was thunder and and there was that booming voice of God. And it was so awe-inspiring. Surely you remember, Galatians, that Moses, when he came down from that mountain, his face was shining like the sun. And the Galatians bought it. And so Paul said in chapter 3, verse 1, fools. I trust you remember the Amplified. Oh, you poor, silly, thoughtless, unreflecting, and senseless Galatians. When God gave the law, God himself told the people to stay away from that mountain or they would die. It was not awe, it was not wonder, it was awful. It was horrifying, it was terrifying. The people even pushed Moses out in front and said, you go talk to God, come back and tell us what he said. They didn't want to talk to God at all when it came through the law, and rightfully so. There's a much better way to God. There's another mountain, remember in Hebrews, Mount Zion. The way of Jesus, where the focus of our lives is on a person instead of principles, where the fix of our gaze is on a redeemer and not rules, where there is life from God to man instead of death from law to man. So Paul, like a tenacious warrior dad, has fought hard for his kids to preserve their spiritual lives and to keep them from that which would only bring them death. 
And then suddenly, if you were with us last week, he shifted gears. It was almost like, like he went from fourth gear down to first. And he functioned like a broken-hearted mama. I trust you know, my friends, all of you who had a mother, that mothers can be very good at tugging on your heartstrings, commonly called putting a guilt trip on you. Paul said, you know, Galatians, I'm in labor pains again for you. Something no mama should ever have to do is birth a child twice. The pain of the first time should have been enough. This is something that no creature of any kind in the universe ever, ever does. Birth a child twice. And I want you to notice that Paul did not say, my love for you is so great, I will do that for you. He says, I'm already doing it. I'm in so much pain in my heart because I have so much better that I want for my kids. And you, in your short-sightedness, do not see it. And so when you, my kids, are suffering loss, I'm suffering loss too. And so I'm already laboring until Jesus is formed in you. Until Jesus becomes the absolute essential reality in your life. Who will fill you so full of life that you won't have to go anywhere else to look for it. Especially to the law. Look at verse 20. What does he say? He says in chapter 4 verse 20, I desire to be with you. So I could change my tone. Because I stand in doubt of you. You know, this is something our modern text-happy world should very easily understand. How many of you have ever had somebody misunderstand what you texted to them? You know, it's very easy to misinterpret when someone is writing. The written word is limited when it comes to expressing love. It's great to communicate facts and truth and doctrine... But words alone can sound very hollow and sterile. Recently, I, I sent some words to a person that was grieving, that's a, a good friend. And so I thought I could do that. But in their grief, as a good friend, they shot back, your written words are hollow, I just need your prayers. You see, when it's just written words, my friends, there are no eyes to look into that can affirm love. There are no arms to embrace, to communicate compassion. There is no voice to extend warmth and kindness. And these are so very needed, especially when somebody is saying strong words, harsh words. And so Paul has a very difficult task. He has to convince the Galatians to say a resounding no to these religious charmers who look good and sound good and who are right in front of them. I trust you know it's very hard to say no to someone right in front of you. You got to be very secure of who you are to be able to say no to someone who's standing right in front of you. And it is so very easier to say no to someone who's far away and out of sight. Paul could very easily, my friends, lose this battle. So what's he going to do? Well, in order to support the evidence that he has presented to them, that life and righteousness are received from God by faith and not by works of the law, and to intensify the appeal that he has made in light of that evidence, for them to cease trying to follow the law, and seek the Holy Spirit as life, Paul now is going to provide the Galatians with an illustration. Illustrations are so very important in the human arena. They paint a picture for us in our minds 
to help us understand the words that are being said to us. And I trust you all know this. Jesus used illustrations all the time. He was the master teacher. And so he said, look at this fig tree over there. Look at this little mustard seed. Look at this little kid on my lap. He taught visually. And I would suggest he did that because after all, according to John chapter one, he is our creator. He created us so he knows how we best learn. He knows that we're visual learners. And so Paul now is going to do the only next thing that he could possibly do. He's given the words as a dad. He's communicated his heart as a broken-hearted mom. And so now he's got to give them a visual. He's going to tell them a story, an old, old story, one they're all familiar with in the hopes of using the story to open their eyes to the glory that life and righteousness are gifts from God. And that we lay hold of them by receiving them with simple faith and not by achieving them by doing the works of the law. He's going to provide four points of emphasis as we wind down this chapter. His first is to give an introduction in verse 21, where he's going to tell them, all right, Galatians, you want to go to the law? Let's look at the law. Let's see what the law really says. Two, he's going to give the historical narrative, the old story of Hagar and Sarah, Ishmael and Isaac. But then he's going to do something. Thirdly, he's going to show us the divine interpretation of that story. He's going to help us dig beneath the surface to see a hidden meaning. And then lastly, he's going to call us to respond, to do in light of what we now know. Let's pray. Father, Paul has been very strong. And we who are dads understand it. Because there have been times we've had to fight for our kids. And he's put his heart on the table. And those who are mamas understand that. For their hearts can be so easily broken by these children they have birthed and given life to. And Father, now Paul is the teacher and we are the students. And he's gonna give us a word picture to help us understand what he's saying. His goal in this final section of chapter four is to make sure that everyone gets it. So, Father, by the power of the Holy Spirit, may everyone in this room get it. We're going to trust you for that in Jesus' name. All right, here we go. Verse 21. First point, his introduction. Look at verse 21. Tell me, you that desire to be under the law, do you not hear the law? That's a nice way of saying, do you pay attention to what you read the hint behind it here is you ought to know better. Since you want to be under the law, let's see what the law really says. That brings us to the story, the illustration, the second point of emphasis, verse 22. For it is written that Abraham, and we'll stop right there. Don't go any further, my friends. Home in on that name, Abraham. Abraham is a big deal. I would dare to say, my friends, that we need to understand Abraham just as much as we need to understand Adam. In Adam, we learn how we got into the mess we're in as human beings in a fallen world. In Adam, we learn about being separated from God, losing life with God, and functioning under a law that we can never keep, and walking around in perpetual guilt and shame and condemnation, functioning like a tick to try to suck life out of everybody we come in contact with. 
isn't that exciting. You need to understand that. You need to understand why people act the way they do. They're just trying to find life, man. Any way they can get it. But in Abraham, we get to understand how to get out of that mess. We, we get to learn about a promise from God that he will give us life. A life that is the inheritance of God himself. He promises it. And all we need to do is function like Abraham and receive it. Believe it. Abraham is a huge issue. In Genesis chapter 12, it is through Abraham that we're told many descendants will be born to him. That a mighty nation is going to be established. A nation that will secure an inheritance from God. And all those blessings that are wrapped up in God's promised redeemer. Verses 22 and 23. Abraham had two sons. We know their names are Isaac and Ishmael. Ishmael was born by the bondwoman, the slave, Hagar. Isaac by the free woman, Sarah. In other words, Ishmael was born by fleshly means. Isaac was born by spiritual means, by the very hand of God himself. Now, my friends, let's be honest, that's not a lot of information. Paul's assumption, I think, here is that everyone in that historical culture would know this story as early history, much like all Americans know the story of the Revolutionary War. But our modern world is far removed from that story. So we need to add the essential details. We need to go back to Genesis and tour through it quickly. We learn in Genesis chapter 12 that when Abraham was given the promise by God and Abraham called him to go to the promised land and get a descendant, an heir, he was 75 years old. Foxy, how old are you? Are you in here today? Maybe you could stand up as a visual aid. <laughs> His wife, Sarah, is 65. And the problem is she has been barren for life. She's never been able to have any children. But they're given a promise. And then comes a problem. The child doesn't arrive. The promise is delayed. They have to Wait for the fulfillment of the promise. I've shared with you many times before that I hate the word wait. Wait is a four-letter word to me, especially when we're waiting for something that's really, really good. And in our waiting, we can often function like that character in Willy Wonka, Veruca Salt. Do you remember her motto? I want it now. And then 10 more years go by. And Abraham is now 85. And Sarah is now 75. And in their waiting, they grow impatient. 10 years is a long time. Can anyone relate? Okay, there's a few honest people here today. That's exciting. And so growing impatient, they take matters into their own hands to make it happen. Can anyone relate to that? I mean, after all, doesn't the Bible say God helps those who help themselves? I think it's found in First Chalice, <laughs> chapter 2. So taking matters into their own hands, in Genesis chapter 16, Sarah decides to give her slave, Hagar, a young maiden, to Abraham as a surrogate wife, a surrogate mother. And it works. A baby is born. Ishmael. But he's the product, my friends, of flesh. He's the product of human effort. He is not the son of promise. And even though it may shock us, God doesn't need our help to accomplish his will. They have functioned man's way instead of God's way. And that never works. Can you see this unhappy couple? I would put it this way. 
Hagar is cuddling. Ishmael is cooing. Abraham is swooning. And Sarah is fuming. <laughs> she is big time jealous. And so Sagar kicks, Sarah kicks Hagar and Ishmael out. But God intervenes, promises care for them, and sends them back. Oh, isn't that exciting for Sarah? Fast forward 13 more years. Now it has been 23 years of waiting. Abraham is 99. Sarah is 89. As I sat in my office and pondered that, I thought to myself, why did God have them wait so long? We can't be dogmatic, but this is what I think. I think they had already produced a son by the flesh, by the works of man. And God had them wait longer until there was absolutely no way they could possibly have had a child by their own resources. God had them wait so long that if they were to have a child, it could only be accomplished by the power of God and everyone would know it. A child only born because of the promise and power of God. And one year later, when Abraham was 100 and Sarah was 90, Ishmael has a brother. Ishmael is now 14 years old. That's going to be significant in a minute. But now the child of promise, the child by faith is born. And his name given by God is Isaac, which means laughter or joy. Don't skip over that. Own this. Only the life we get from God can bring joy. That's significant. And what's even more significant is that Sarah adds these words. All who hear it will laugh with me. That is what grace does, my friends. It brings joy to those who receive it. I believe with all my heart that the people of grace are to be the happiest people in the world because they know they're free from the law. They know that their sins are forgiven. They know that they have life with God. They know that the inheritance is theirs. God himself is their inheritance and nothing is ever gonna separate them from him. Joy, deep abiding joy lived out in a fallen world. And so though we have joy, all is not joyful. Think about this with me. For 14 years, Ishmael, the flesh, has been top dog. He has gotten all the attention in the household. But now Isaac, grace, comes on the scene. I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but I want you to think about this. Scour the pages of Genesis, my friends, and I challenge you, you will find that Ishmael is no problem at all in that household until grace shows up. Now there's conflict in the home because we've got slave and free. We've got life and death we have grace and we have works. And so three years later, when Ishmael is now 17 and Isaac is three, Isaac is weaned. And Abraham has a big party for him. And the entire household focuses on the child of grace, the child of promise, and great joy over him. And Ishmael sort of fades out of view. And Ishmael gets mad. And so he mocks Isaac. There's only one problem. Mama bear, Sarah, saw him do it. And mama bear is going to protect her child. Let me tell you something, gang. If you know my bride, she is a very sweet, 
gentle, tender, kind woman. It was only that kind of woman that could have put up with me. (laughs) But I have seen this gentle, kind, tender, gracious woman become a fierce lion when her children were threatened. And so she demands, Abraham, you get that woman and that boy out of our home. And look what she tells him. The son of that flesh will not be an heir with the son of promise. And this is huge. Do not miss this. In the pages of Genesis, God agrees with her. God himself says there is no inheritance for those who work for it. The inheritance is only for those who have faith. The slave, the child of works, cannot coexist with the free, the child of faith. And that's the historical narrative. Which brings us to, thirdly, the divine understanding of the historical narrative. And it starts in verse 24 and home in on those words. Paul says in verse 24, this historical narrative is an allegory. The word literally means a story that can be interpreted to have a deeper meaning. And so Paul uses that word to alert us to trust the Holy Spirit to go deeper into the story, to mine below the surface. Why? Because it's beneath the surface surface where you find the most precious jewels, riches that we can claim as our own. They're now made available to us because the Holy Spirit has put us in the know. We, the people of grace, know what the rest of the religious world does not know. I think of John 8. Jesus said, you'll come to know the truth. and The truth will make you free. And how do we come to know the truth? Through the written word taught by the Holy Spirit. In John 14, 26, Jesus said the Holy Spirit will teach you all things. And so I I would say to you here today, assembled together, what a glorious privilege we have as the children of God who have the Holy Spirit living inside of us, Romans 8 and 9, to personally become our teacher and lead us into the deeper meaning of the story of Hagar and Sarah, Ishmael and Isaac. Notice verse 24, the two women, Paul says, Hagar and Sarah are two covenants. Note the language. Hagar, the slave woman, come from Mount Sinai. That's the law. The law ushers in human effort, the works of the flesh, achieving, performing. But it only produces a child that's a slave. Bondage. Bondage to the law, bondage to self, bondage to sin, bondage to pride, bondage to condemnation and death. Hagar, Paul says, is the old covenant. The law, Exodus 20 of Moses from Mount Sinai and her children are not free. Her children have no inheritance. Look at what verse 24 adds. This is so important. Mount Sinai, he throws in this little nugget. He's in Arabia. Well, tell me about Arabia, my friends. That's a desert. There's no water in the desert. That means there will be death. Are you all with me? You understand what the Holy Spirit is saying here? You need to because Paul is about to drop a bombshell. Here it comes. Look at verse 25. Hagar, Sinai, the law, death, slavery, is, present tense, Jerusalem. Please hear me. Though Paul says this refers specifically to the Jews living under the law, he would also refer to all mankind 
who live under the law. The law of the Garden of Eden that Adam plunged the entire race into. The law of seeking to be like God and do what's right and not do wrong. As we saw last week in Romans 3, it would include the entire world of humanity that does not live by faith in the promise of God. So anytime anyone seeks to live by the law, seeking to merit by human effort through their own performance, they will in actuality live and die as a slave with no access to the promised inheritance from God because it is only available to them by faith. Anyone who does that is a child of Hagar. And I trust you see what Paul just did. Talk about a way to get run out of town. Talk about a way to not win friends and influence people. I'm going to put this in plain frank for you. And put it up on the screen. Paul has just said the present day Jews. My brethren who are the physical descendants of Abraham and Sarah because of their failure to live by faith in the grace of God through Jesus in the new covenant and because of their persistence to continue under the economy of the old covenant in seeking to merit righteous by their own good works of the flesh are actually the spiritual children of Hagar and they are slaves. I've got to help you think the way a Jew thinks. The Jews think we are the children of Abraham and Sarah. The Arab world are the children of Abraham and Hagar. And Paul has just said to them, you may be physically the child of Abraham and Sarah, but if you are living by law and not trusting in the promise, you physical Jews are actually Arabs. D did you get it? <laughs> Do you see why the unbelieving Jews hated Paul so much? They loved to boast that they were the children of Abraham, that they were the slaves of no man. And Paul has just told them, you're not spiritually the children of Sarah. Spiritually, you're the children of Hagar. And you're slaves. My friends, I, I can almost picture that if Paul had been present with them physically, it would be like he's grabbing their shoulders and saying, do you hear what I'm saying, my dear Galatians? If you listen to these religionists, if you follow these manipulating charmer Jews who are trying to get you to return to the law, you will be living as a slave and functioning as a child of Hagar. Hagar, a slave, can only produce slaves. Five times in this short little passage, Paul says slave. Slave, 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 slave. Do you really want Hagar to be your mother? Why would you do that? When verse 26, Jerusalem above, the promise from God is free. Free from the law. Free from works. Free from achieving. Free from performing. Free from bondage. Free from the flesh. Free from the power of sin. Free from having to perform for other people. This economy of grace with Sarah as our mother is a gift from God above. He's done for us what we could not do for ourselves. Human effort can never fulfill the promise of gaining life out of death. Only God can do that. And he did it. He sent his promised son to give us life apart from the law. He established a new covenant in his son, through the line of Sarah, Sarah is the free woman. 
Sarah is that other comfort covenant. Her children are birthed in faith by the promise of God. Her economy is grace and her fruit is joy. And so Paul quotes Isaiah 54 in verse 27. Oh, rejoice, barren woman who does not bear. Break forth and shout, you who are not in labor. If your life has been dead and barren and empty for so long, you can now find life simply by faith. And in finding life, your heart will be so full, you will shout and sing and rejoice. For more numerous, look at this language, are the children of the desolate than the one who has a husband. What in the world does that mean? I spent a lot of time on that verse. Paul quotes Isaiah 54, a prophecy about exiled, desolate Israel returning home to become fruitful again, and he applies it to Hagar and Sarah. Sarah was obviously the barren one, and the key word is was. She now has a child, and through that child, she will have many, many children by faith which now includes us, the Gentiles. And her children, look what it says, will be more numerous than the one who has a husband. That's the problem verse right there. How are we to understand that? Well, I would suggest to you that in that culture, the supreme function of being a wife was to bear children. And if you did not bear children because of that limited understanding of what real life and spirit means, your value and worth are tied to whether or not you have children or not. Hagar, by virtue of having Abraham's child, functioned for all those years more like Abraham's wife than Sarah did. Hagar had the one child, Ishmael, through her husband, if you will, Abraham. That's all in the past now. Sarah's going to have a multitude of children. And all those who put their faith in the promise will become her spiritual children as well. And that's exactly what Paul tells the Galatians, verse 28. You, brethren, like Isaac, are the children of promise. You, people of Grace Life Fellowship, you are like Isaac. You are the spiritual children of Sarah. The spiritual children of promise. And you are free. Did you notice the language? He does not say get free. He says you already are. You just need to embrace it. Verse 29, look at that first word, but. No in, pun intended, my friends, but this is a really big but. You are free, but look at the language. As at that time, so it is now. What does that mean? Just like we saw on the pages of Genesis with Isaac and Ishmael, so it is today. The one born according to the flesh, Ishmael, the lawkeeper, the legalist, the religionist, persecuted him who was born according to the spirit. Those who live by grace through faith. Hear this, my friends. Religious people, legalists, followers of the law are always going to persecute the children of grace. Why is that? Let's think about that. Well, it's really a very simple explanation. When people pursue the law, ultimately their focus is not going to be on the law, but on themselves and how well they are performing the law. 
Look at how much I've done. Do you remember the Pharisee in Luke 18? What did he say? I fast. I tithe. I pray. I use the King James Bible. I practice baptism by immersion. I speak in tongues. I'm a Baptist. I'm a Presbyterian. I'm of grace. Be careful, we can use grace as the new law. I, I, I. And what did Jesus say? Yes, he prayed with himself. There's no God in that. There's only self. They work so hard and they do so much that they do not like being told that what they do counts nothing. Remember how shocked Nicodemus was when Jesus told him he was not in the kingdom, that he had to be born again? I'm a ruler. I'm a Pharisee. I'm a member of the Sanhedrin. I'm the teacher in all Israel. All that counts nothing? You mean I've got to start over? And what did Jesus say? Yep. You need a new beginning. Just like I told you, you got to be born of the water and the spirit. I, Ezekiel 36, you got to be born of the new covenant. You got to get out of the old covenant performing and get into the new covenant of receiving. Cease from your works and enter into grace. People can get really upset when you tell them that all they're doing is a waste of time and effort. That all that they're doing has not merited anything for them in the eyes of God. That their works of the flesh are nothing more than wood, hay, and stubble, and they're going to be burned up. I mean, if you really want to make them mad, quote Isaiah 64, Adam. Did you know that God says your righteousness is like a filthy menstrual pad? Sorry for the graphicness, but that's what God's word says. You know, it's kind of hard to believe, but people get mad when you tell them that. My friends... Study church history, and you will learn that the church has suffered far more greatly at the hands of religious people than it ever has with an atheist. Revelation 17 says the religion, the great harlot, is drunk with the blood of the saints. Religious people are dangerous to the cause of Christ, especially when it is the pursuit of religion in the name of Jesus. Those who name the name of Jesus have killed thousands and thousands of Christians who proclaim the grace of God. So what are we to do in light of what we know? Ishmael and Isaac, works and grace, flesh and spirit cannot exist in the same house. Because the children of law will persecute the children of promise. Because the children of works will persecute the children of grace. Paul ushers forth a call for you and I to put into action something we, people of faith, must do. We must preserve our freedom. And so he gives us, fourthly, the call on our lives. Verses 30 and 31. And what is it we're to do? Look at this. Cast out the bondwoman and her son. Put him out. Please hear me on this. Grace is not wimpy. Grace is courageous. Grace is tenacious. Grace must be that way because we are fighting for people to become free. So what does it mean? I think it means, first of all, protect the church from legalism. Do not mix the old and the new covenant. Do not add law to grace. Become new covenant purists who continuously lead people away from the law, who continuously lead people to focus on Jesus, not just as our Lord and Savior who will get us into heaven someday, but as our life who will bring heaven to us right now by his presence 
in our spirits. Romans 5, 8 through 10, we are saved by his life. His life empowers us to live differently. And so build the wall. of grace. Preach and practice Colossians 2.6. As you have received him, so walk in him. You received him by grace through faith. Live in grace by faith. That's going to take time, my friends. There will be so much we have to unlearn So secondly, I think that means exercise patience and tolerance. Allow time for members of the body of Christ to learn to walk in the spirit. They've lived by law for a long time. It's going to take a while to learn to live by grace. 2 Corinthians 3.17 says, where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. This is the fact of the new covenant. We're already free. But the next verse is the key. Day by day, we are all in a process of being transformed into the image of Christ. And so some of us may be further along than others. But remember, there are brothers in grace, and they're learning to walk. I think of the language of Romans 14. One has faith that he may eat all things. That's the new covenant. But he who is weak eats vegetables only. He doesn't yet understand his freedom. That's why he's called weak. But he who eats should not despise him who doesn't eat. Do not belittle him. Help him, teach him, tolerate him until he grows up. Further, he who does not eat should not judge he who eats. Who are you to judge another? He answers to his own master. You with your rules are not the master of him who is free. And realize that what each is doing, they're doing unto the Lord. The one who eats is thanking God. The one who doesn't eat is doing it unto God in worship as well. And to his own master, he stands or falls, and he will stand, for the Lord is able to make him stand. It's a promise he's going to grow us all up. It just takes time. So we're to protect freedom, but in an atmosphere of patience while people learn how to walk in grace. In other words, we don't automatically move people out. However, thirdly, when legal people persecute the free, we try to win them. But if they persist in their pursuit of spiritual terrorism, persecuting and condemning the children of grace, the text is pretty clear. Put them out. Freedom won must be freedom protected. We've got to fight to keep our freedom or we'll lose our freedom. Remember what Paul said in Corinthians, a little bit of leaven can leaven a whole lump. We can't let them run through the body of Christ with their death-giving law without being restrained. We are not children of the bondwoman, verse 31. We're children of the free. And I really think Galatians 1 is an, 5, 1 is an unfortunate chapter, verse division. Chapter 5, verse 1 belongs with chapter 4. It was for freedom that Christ died to set us free. Oh, my goodness. When did you ever hear that taught in church? I heard for years that Jesus died for my sins so that I could go to heaven. But he didn't just die for your sins, gang. He died so that you could live free. And so Paul says it negatively and positively. Positively, stand firm. Negatively, do not be subject again to a yoke of slavery. Do not read that casually. Do not miss the word picture Paul is putting into our hearts and minds. He calls the law a yoke of slavery. Like an animal that's been loose from pulling a plow. Never allow yourself to be hooked up to that plow again. You've been set free. Do not return to the law. If you return to the yoke of the law, you'll toil, you'll labor, you'll exhaust yourself, you'll sweat trying to be and do what you can never be and do. So Matthew 11, Jesus, that's the great alternative. Come to me if you're tired and weary and heavy laden and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I'm gentle and humble in heart and you will find rest in your souls because my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Why? Because our only responsibility is to trust him to do in and through us what he's calling us to do. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 23 is a memory verse for every one of us. 
Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely. May your spirit and soul and body be preserved completely without blame at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ because, here's the key words, faithful is he who calls you and he will do it. I love what Major Ian Thomas used to say, God himself is the dynamic of his own demands. He never calls you to do something without providing himself as the means to do it. I love the simplicity of Habakkuk too. The just shall live by faith. Please understand this through the simplicity of faith in the economy of grace and the power of the spirit and the rest of Jesus, we will work. We're not going to sit on our backsides in the economy of grace. We're going to work. But experiencing the life we've been given with our acceptance secure and our righteousness permanently established we will work from a position of rest with the Holy Spirit expressing himself through us, which is where we're going next in Galatians chapter five. We're going to the spirit. And so there will be no more toil. There'll be no sweat. Remember Genesis chapter three, my friends, sweat was a product of the fall. Remember what the good maester used to say. There are to be no sweaty Christians. Amen. I was waiting for that. We're going to go to the Lord's table to communion. And a lot of times, you know, churches do this, it's morbid. We focus on sin and we feel so guilty and then we celebrate the table. Uh-uh. This table is about a victory that has been won. It's about a freedom that's been secured. This table is to be a celebration. Isaac is laughter. When they did the first communion, they went out with joy in their hearts singing. That's what we're going to do right now as the men pass among you. We're going to sing with joy. Because we are free. That does it for today's episode. We'll be back again next Tuesday as we continue Pastor Frank's series on Galatians. But don't forget, again this Friday, we'll be sharing our next edition of Conversations in Grace with Jesse and Pastor Tim. We hope you're enjoying the podcast so far. If you are, please consider leaving us a review or a rating on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you Friday.